right. Awesome. I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Chung. Jennifer, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It is um, beautiful weather here today. I'm in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Uh, and uh, spring is starting to slowly creep in here. Like the most of the snow is gone. And we start to, we, this is when we get the most hopeful as Canadians. Like, oh, it's, it's starting to slowly <laughs> end. And we're actually stepping into spring and summer. So I don't know. Oh, that's amazing. Weather, yeah. Where are you at? And where, what's the weather like there? So I'm actually in Cincinnati. I'm originally from the East Coast. So the, the weather is pretty similar since this is the southern part of Ohio. But we actually, I mean, I think we're in the 60 degrees today. So it's yeah, actually... Okay. Pretty wonderful, especially since we've had a little bit of a rough winter here ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I think too with this whole, with the way the world's been the last year, I think winters have even been tougher on people. It's like a darker days. You go to work in the dark. You go home in the dark. It's like it's tough at the best of times. But I think now, just with everything else going on piled on top of it, I think it's even a little bit harder. And people are longing for spring. And some are more so than ever. I don't know if you feel the same about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think just isolationism, which, you know, I mean, throughout the entire pandemic for all of us, but then, you know, you add in the winter and you eliminate the option of outdoor, safe outdoor gatherings. Yeah. And then obviously we all know, I mean, I think most of us are probably susceptible to seasonal affective disorder. So, I mean, just the combination for everybody, I, I definitely saw some kind of rise in depression, um, anxiety in a lot of my patients as well. But yeah, I mean, I think we were all kind of susceptible to that. So spring has been incredibly welcomed from for, for me and for everybody that I know. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think we're all looking forward to it. All right. So um, you are a doctor. We will get into this, but I want you to take me back to your early days as a child growing up. Yeah. What was what was your household like? What were you like as a kid? I'm always fascinated by by people's early years and kind of those formative formative years and those uh, those times that we all kind of look back and sometimes cringe thinking about <laughs> thinking about who we were, but realize they were all necessary steps. Absolutely. Take me back to young. Take me back to young Jennifer and who she was and what was going on. Oh well, that's a um, little walk down memory lane. Um, so my parents actually immigrated here in the 1970s. My father was actually a chest surgeon in Korea, but met my mother, who was a little bit more, I guess, progressive in her mindset, and she was set on moving to America to give a better future for her children. So my father actually left his training program to come to America without any English, not knowing the English language whatsoever. He had very, very basic vocabulary. So what he did was he worked 15, 16 hour days in a clinic and in a very underprivileged community, um, you know, doing all sorts of treatments and procedures completely out of the, you know, his training. Um, and they learned English actually from a, a Holocaust survivor. Uh, down, actually a Great Depression survivor that lived in the same neighborhood as them. So we grew up and my father, you know, I was born in Philadelphia um, where he was actually doing his anesthesia residency because um, he was finally able to match into a program after learning, getting a better handle on the language. So I was born in Philadelphia as, along with my sister. She's three years older than me. My brother actually came with them from Korea. Uh, he was, he came with them when he was two. So, um, you know, growing up, my father was really actually not around much because he was working all the time. I remember him getting paged all throughout the night. So my mom really kind of took control, you know, raised us and she was kind of the household, um, 
you know, manager, I guess. And, and, you know, and she, it was, it was kind of amazing what my mom did with me. Um, and, and we joke because she kind of wanted me to be a boy. So she raised me essentially with that mindset where I actually, you know, gender and, and race and ethnicity was never an obstacle. So, you know, I was kind of, I was playing tennis with the boys. I was running with the boys. Um, you know, she encouraged me to like, to run for class president. And she always pushed me, which, and, you know, I, so I'd never fell into that category of like the more reserved Asian American, um, which I do see now a lot. And, you know, so, I mean, I, I was playing tennis four or five days a week. I was playing tournaments from, you know, eight to 13 and playing sports. So I was really active with, you know, extracurricular activities and um, athletics. Um, yeah. And I mean, I was the youngest of three and, you know, we, my mom, they penny pinched, they were immigrants, you know, that came from poverty. So it was a very, you know, we were very cognizant of uh, spent, you know, saving money and, you know, we didn't really live a life of luxury. They didn't, they didn't take us on lavish vacations. You know, it was, you know, education is most important. Um, you know, athletics and some of those extracurricular leadership activities were kind of what was ingrained in me as a child. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm reading a book right now. I just started it and it's about just the importance of an environment on our decisions and what shapes us because this this argument about discipline and willpower and that's what gets you over the top this counters that by saying environment is is as important or if not more so and it's interesting that your mom raised you with no 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 gender-based ceiling you know of like well girls act like this and so you can't do the following things and and do you think that that played a large role in kind of shaping who you were as a result of that absolutely i mean and the, the irony is that she would say you know all these things that you've accomplished you know my friends and i always say if you were only a boy but she still like, but she still pushed me to do all these things. And I believed I could. Um, right. And so, you know, that was the amazing thing about, about how I was raised. And, and, and I share that story because I do think that that's kind of what we want. I want, we would want to pass down to the younger generations where we shouldn't be focused on the society, you know, the, the, the social constructs of what a, a female, a girl, um, an Asian American or a minority um, should do, you know, it really should just be do work to the best of your ability and, and hone your talents and just kind of shoot, shoot for the stars, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, I often think about, you know, as being biracial growing up in, in a small town in, in Canada, in Newfoundland, where I'm from, and the importance of seeing, seeing someone who looks like you doing something, you know, like, I don't know if, if people can associate or, or understand that if you haven't been through it, like if you look and every time you see someone on television, who's a comedian, a doctor, a lawyer, any profession, and they happen to look like you, you just take it as like, okay, clearly that's something I can achieve. and something I can be. But when you don't see it, it's like the reverse of that message is sent to you all the time. Like, well, people like me don't do that thing. And so you almost cross it off your list, you know? And I remember seeing a black hockey player for the first time when I was 10 or 11 years old. It was a goaltender for the Edmonton Oilers. And he took his mask off and I went, oh, there's a black guy playing. And, I, and that just blew my mind. I was like, oh, we, so people, guys like me can actually, and it wasn't something that's said to you. It's not something that, someone has a message now and sits down and goes, oh, you can achieve this thing. It's literally just a visual cue, you know? And I, and I think 
I guess with your dad being a doctor, was that that kind of visual cue for you, like an in-house thing, but also like, yeah, I, I can go on to do whatever I want if I find myself. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, my parents shielded us a lot from the struggles um, of their childhood and their immigration here. I mean, my dad told me much later in life, probably in my 20s, that he still wakes, he still, I get emotional when I say this, but he still wakes up smelling blood. Because um, as a kid, he they walked hundreds of miles across the country during the Korean War. And so, and just dead bodies just left and right. And he says he still wakes up and, and can, can smell the blood. And, you know, and that was, you know, that was just to think about that that is what they went through. Um, and then they were able to come here and really just kind of and achieve that American dream, which is a just incredible thing. And, you know, puts sacrifice and selflessness and, and hard work for me in, a, in just a completely different, um, in a different light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating it's, a, it's fascinating. I feel like when when some of the situations that immigrants come from, and like I, I find here in Canada, I'm walking down the street and I hear somebody speaking a different language, and I I often laugh to myself and I go, I barely speak English well. Do you know what I mean? I know. <laughs> I know. And for my dad to like learn the language, take all the tests and exams, and then you know, be a physician here. I mean, I, it's, it's like a completely different generation. And it's something that I feel like we all really need to remember um, yeah. about immigrants. You know, I mean, it's when they, when they come here, I mean, I, I, you know, and we talk about when, when immigrants, when slaves were brought to America, when, you know, all the subsequent um, ethnic groups that, 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 that came here, I mean, they, immigrants, built this country, America, mm-hmm. at least, you know, yeah. I'm going to be honest, I don't know much about Canadian history, but yeah, that, that's truly same. how I, much that's the same true. here. So yeah. 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 I mean, that's truly how I feel. And, you know, obviously uh, an immigrant story is very different than a black American story. So, um, you know, in terms of realizing the American dream, I think that it is actually, there were less obstacles for immigrants to achieve that versus black Americans, black Americans who were brought here on slave ships. Mm, true, true. Um, I wonder too, like I, when I think about parents who suffer hardship, and, and I think in in our day and age right now, kids may not understand like just how difficult it was for previous generations. And I think that's just a product of, of all of us being older. We just don't, we've never lived in those shoes. And so how can we fully understand it? But I think we're in a society right now where people just want instant gratification all the time it's likes on social media it's i want what i want now and this this notion of like having a goal but it's so far in the distance but you're just going to take the steps every single day to achieve it i almost worry sometimes that we're we're losing that entirely that i don't know if generations as we get older and future generations come along will they still have those that ability to have something on the horizon and work for it and not and not throw in the towel because they have not achieved it right away. You know, when I think about your father having to learn English and, you know, like how many obstacles would have been in his way to try and achieve this? And, and I don't know if you think about that, but I, I often think about that. I think about that all the time because I feel like, you know, we're, we are in a culture where there's so much instant gratification at such a young age. I mean, you think about like the serotonin surges in like a 10 year old who has a cell phone that is, you know, anticipating return text messages or, you know, is on TikTok already and is, and is getting likes and is thriving off of that on, in, on that su- such a young developing brain. What does that do for them? You know, they're never going to be able to get gratification or peace of mind unless it's, it's done in a, in a kind of quick, 
quick fashion because that's what they're you know that's what that's how their brain is developing and that it absolutely worries me um you know and and I would hope that as parents continue to kind of really delay some of these kind of tech, technology you know just just allowing kids to be kids so that you know and and knowing that it takes hard work to get to a to a to b you know um you know i i just it's yeah it, it i think about it often actually yeah it's a, it's a terrifying thought, actually. I, I, I went to comedy. I'm like, I'll just tell jokes instead and just go over here and bury my head in the sand with <laughs> silliness. So Because <laughs> you think about it, I mean, even back when we were, I'm turning 41 next month, we didn't have right. cell phones growing up. You know, remember the day when like we had to come home and listen to voice messages? Like now everybody, if you don't respond quickly, they think something has gone awry, you know? Yeah. So. It, 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 yeah, you're so right. Also, yeah. I, I talk to my friends about this all the time. Like, if I was gonna, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, if I was gonna meet you at the mall, I'm like, hey, Jennifer, I'm, I'm on my landline at my house. Right. I'm gonna meet you at the mall at two o'clock. And you're like, okay, cool, see you there, wherever. Like, I have to show up at two o'clock. You know what right, I mean? like, exactly. There's, right. there's no way to change the plan now that the wheels are in motion. And so exactly. I have to show up at two. If you're <laughs> not there at two, how long do I wait till like, is Jennifer coming? I don't know. <laughs> 10 after two. Like it's just, but you had to commit to a plan and actually show up. Whereas now people just go, you know, at, at two. I'll be five, running 10 minutes behind. Hey, running behind, whatever. You can always alter the plan. The person's like, whatever. But so we don't have to follow through on anything anymore. You always can adjust the parameters of just a, an average meeting or social. That's gathering. actually a really, I never even thought about that. That's actually a really good point where it's like, you know, the punctuality component. I mean, yeah, I mean, we can just tell them you're running late and it's totally <laughs> fine. Another thing exactly. I thought about is when I was younger, I remembered everybody's phone number. Yes, so yes. my memory, I was, you know, even as a kid, those are memory skills. And now I don't, I don't, I don't even know my, I honestly, I still don't know my husband's phone number. Like it's like it's 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 embarrassing to say, but you know, know, yeah, I still don't, I still don't know it. So I mean, there's even just that component. I know it's crazy. I know my girlfriends, but I say it like I'm trying to say the alphabet backwards. Like I say the numbers, kind of like in a guessing tone. (laughs) Like I'm like five. Like that's how I say it. I go up on the end of the the number. Um, And I've had times where I've lost my phone. And then someone goes, oh, well, here, use my phone. And I'm like, that's useless to me. Because I don't I know, know exactly. Number. It's right. Exactly. It's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. And I'm like, so then I realized like, oh, I'm part of the problem. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about younger generations. It's like, no, I, I had to start with me. Like, I, I can't be pointing the finger at kids. I'm like, I, I got my own boat to <laughs> roll over here. Right. So <laughs> that's a problem. Exactly. Um, so you're, you're growing up, you're seeing your father, he's, he's working tirelessly, your, your mom is kind of calling the shots in the household, it sounds like. So when do you decide that you are going to go into medicine, that this is, this is the road that you want to go down? So it's interesting because, you know, I was actually accepted into medical school when I was 17. So okay, um, we're going to stop so, right now. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so we're, right, well, you're talking to a comedian here, so you can just ease off on the impressive academic stats here. Well, the thing is, is, and I'll be honest, you know, I mean, so in America, and I don't know if Canada has this, there are combined programs. So there are a bridged program where it's two years of undergrad and four years of medical school, three and four, or just the regular four and four. So I was accepted into a four, four program, but I was accepted into undergrad 
and then accepted into the the medical school. And then essentially, you know, it's you got to maintain a certain GPA and a certain um, test score, the MCAT score to stay in the program. So I'm going to be honest. I mean, I don't know if I really knew when I was 16 and applying. I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, with my father being a physician and I always had this like innate kind of caretaking personality, but do you really know at that age, you know? Yeah. So, so part of me in all candor, I, I, I think it was wanting to be like my dad and then also hearing my mom in, in my ear as most immigrants, um, that doctors, you know, are stable jobs and that that's kind of what you want to do. So, I mean, I, that's what I did, you know, and, and I, and I went through the motions, I went through college and I picked a, an undergrad, I picked a program where actually I could major in a liberal arts subject. So most of these programs, you have to major in a science, but right. where I went, which is called Muhlenberg college, you, I, in, I could kind of major in anything I wanted, which was very appealing to me. So, I mean, I mean, I took like modern dance classes. I took, you know, literature classes. I kind of was able to have that experience and not just be pigeonholed into science classes and research exclusively. But I don't think that I really, really knew that it was right for me until probably medical school or even residency. Because it's like, I knew, I knew that it was right, but I think because I felt kind of goaded onto that pathway that I almost had a little resentment as I went through my years of schooling. And it was almost like I intentionally was defiant against it because I felt like it wasn't my choice. But as I went through medical school and especially, you know, residency, and I can tell you how I found my specialty, it, it honestly, it was the perfect fit for me. And I can say that, I mean, I absolutely love what I do. And it's, it's like, it's a blessing that it's somehow life ended up working out like that for me. Cause I know that's not the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's kind of my journey with it. It's amazing. I, I often think about that too, about how we put pressure on kids at an early age. I remember like being 16, like if you were asking me at 16, where I saw myself or what I want to do with my life. Like I'm still fighting acne over here. Like I got, I, I you, you want me to, to act, tell you where I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, so exactly you know, that pressure we put on kids to have stuff all figured out at 16 and know what school you want to go to and what you're going to do with the rest of your life to me just seems absurd to do that to a child. Um, but I want to get into academics because I was, <laughs> I was not strong academically and I realized it all made sense why I became a comedian because when I, when things would be taught to me, I would just question them. Like I would go, but why do we have to know that? Like the Pythagorean theorem, like, but what, who is he? And why does he get it? How is this relevant? Right. Yeah. What is he, what has he done for me? And how come we don't have to, (laughs) like, I just, my mind worked that way. So I wasn't even letting in the data because I was still trying to question who this guy was. And that's perfect for a comedian because comedians just, we question the world. We, we change the perspective a little bit and we create comedy out of it. So I didn't realize until I was about 30 that like, oh, I'm going to do comedy and this all makes sense now. But academically, I, I struggled in certain subjects, especially math and science, because things seemed black and white. It was like, this is always this. And I would go, but why? But I understand why it can't be this sometimes. So I struggled with that. Academically for you, was it something that just came naturally to you or were you, did you put in, do you remember putting in a lot of hours? Was your mom kind of like, let's, let's go. Was there a lot of discipline? How, how did, how did you approach academics? 
So what I want to say is I, I oftentimes think comedians are some of the smartest people. Um, I and, totally and, agree. I totally and it's, agree. Stop right it, there. But, but, and what you kind of described to me makes sense because your thought process was so like mature that it, it was almost like you realized the impracticality of a lot of the things that we learn in school, you know? And I mean, and I see that, I see that with my husband and my, my brother, even where they're so smart that it's like school, school was kind of a waste of time in a lot of ways, because in reality, are we using the Pythagorean theorem? Are we using calculus? Are we using, you know, a lot of these things that's just, I mean, like the real life application isn't there. Right. Right. Um, in terms of, for me, I mean, yeah, my parents, my mom definitely pushed me in terms of studying academics, but then I became also an, an, an very efficient and inept procrastinator. So I was very like, I waited a lot to last minute. So, but you know, in terms of the focus being like, you know, you can't go out, you can't like hang out with your friends, you got to study. Um, so I would stay home and study, but I don't think I really buckled down until I was under pressure. Because a lot of times I didn't want to do all of that. I didn't want to invest as many hours into studying as she wanted me to. But right. that's a lot of an Asian, you know, first generation American par- Asian parents are all about academics, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's also interesting too because I, I felt the same way. Like I would, I would put myself under the gun as well, pressure-wise with papers and studying. But I would get away with it, so it only encouraged the behavior for me to do it again. Because I was like, well, yeah. I'll just a night or two before, I'll just crank this thing out, and it'll be enough to get me by. And I realized afterwards, like I should, I would have done way better if I'd like, oh, I'm going to start that right away and like exactly. So you know, but that and that's a thing. I mean, you know, sometimes there is an innate ability, and so when when you realize you have that, you start using it to your advantage. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, we can look back. I mean, even me, I could have put more time into things, but like, does that change where I am now? And does it, you know, are you any less happy because you didn't put all that time in? But I still think, and that's why I think it's important for us to encourage our kids to do, to pursue what they're passionate about. You know, I mean, you can't stick your child in in a room to study for five hours after school. You know, if they have other interests, I, you know, I think forcing a, forcing someone to kind of overstudy is going to just backfire. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I think too that we. You know, we don't often ask kids like what they want to do. We kind of just force them down these roads and just the you know, parents get upset then when the kid isn't performing. But it's like they just don't have an interest, a genuine interest in doing that. And I've seen with sports as well, where you have these, you know, um, over the top parents with coaching and stuff. And then they're they want the kid to get a scholarship at a did one school or whatever it is. And like the kid's like, I like basketball, but I, I don't want to be in a gym, you know, five hours a day. I want to go play video games with my friends or I want to do whatever. And I think it is a danger of parents living vicariously through their kids or seeing that their children are somehow a reflection of them and their parenting. And so I need my kid to be a star because that reflects on us as a family. You know, I think it's a real danger to that. I don't know if you see much of that, but I've seen it a lot. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I think we, I think we see that a lot. So parents need to check themselves, you know, is this actually my dream or is this my child's dream? Now, of course you can't let your kid play uh, video games all night and not have the balance or the discipline, but it's, forcing, um, you know, your dreams on your children. I mean, that if, if you want to break down their spirit, I mean, that's exactly the way to do it. So, yeah. and I, you know, and I say that about, a re- I say that about religion also give, give your kids like, you know, give them independence to learn on their own, you know, and make independent decisions. Cause that's how you'll, that's how you, if you foster independent thought as adults, 
So I'm an advocate for that. I'm an advocate for giving kids autonomy, you know, obviously within reason, but you know, let that we want them to be as successful as possible and making decisions for them is not yep. the way to do it. I totally agree. I totally agree. My grandparents raised me and I remember distinctly them making me go to church up till about maybe grade nine or 10. Then they were like, all right, you can choose now. You can do what you want. And I was like, all right, well, see you later. And I would just like <laughs> go off and do whatever. Like, I'm like, this is a trick. Is this like, am I going to do it? They're like, no, totally up to you. But I thought it was cool that they just kind of took their foot off the gas or were like, okay, well, you know, you've seen enough of it. If this is something you want to continue to do, fine. And, and I didn't choose to, but, but I always, I'm grateful that they gave me that option, you know? Yeah. And I always say, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I want, I want to raise my kids with morals. And, you know, and I say my siblings and I genuinely, I mean, we were not brought up in the church. And honestly, I think that we all are very good human beings. So, you know, it has nothing to me, it has nothing to do with necessarily have, you know, raising your children in the church to ensure kind of a, a, a strong moral compass. It's, you know, raising them to be good humans by example alone and just, you know, exposures to other things. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also feel like the opposite is also true. There's lots of folks who go to church who are not the best people. So, yeah. you know, yeah, there's no I mean, guarantee, so. no, no guarantee that uh, walking in through those doors every Sunday is going to make you a great person either. Right. So um, I think it's a little bit of a crutch at times. So you, you mentioned earlier about when you realize what you wanted to specialize in, and I've talked about this on the podcast before about myself, but when I walked on stage for the first time, oh, we have a guest. I love it. Yeah, we have a little kitty. Sorry about that. Oh my God. <laughs> so cute. I love it. So cute. There's a, there's a little dog. Oh my God. Beautiful. We have a little dog running around here. Popo. Oh, right here. I love so, that. Yeah. So she's, she's here shedding somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but we, uh, we talked about, I've talked before about how, the first time I went on stage and went to an amateur night and I got on stage and I got that first laugh from an audience of strangers, you know, and it was five minutes and I felt like I was just on a high wire walking across and I felt so adrenalized and energized. And I remember going, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Like it really was a light bulb type moment. And you said earlier, like most people don't find that thing that they love and that they're passionate about. Um, talk a little bit about that, like how you kind of stumbled into this, what you want to specialize in. And, and, you know, you kind of just went dove right into it. Talk about that a little bit. So, um, you know, essentially I was 14 um, when I personally started developing kind of severe debilitating back pain. And I was, I remember I was running track. I was the captain of my eighth grade track team. And I, you know, every time I started running, I couldn't walk, you know, it was like, I, my mom had to help me out of bed and my coach didn't necessarily believe me. So I was I still had to run all the races, but then I was out for days. And, you know, I started seeing different types of doctors and healthcare providers and no one had a diagnosis. And so basically it was like, you know, here I am, or I used to be a ranked tennis player and, you know, running track. And now I can't like wear shoes to my eighth grade graduation dance and I can't get out of bed on my own. So it basically, I was, I basically had to succumb to not being able to run anymore, not really able to play much tennis, um, not be as active without a clear diagnosis because no one was able to find it. So my father, as you, as I mentioned, as a physician, um, he introduced me to one of his partners when I was in medical school, who's a PMNR physician who specializes in, sp in spine and pain management. 
And he ran a couple blood tests and, you know, thought outside of the box. And he diagnosed me with an autoimmune condition called ankylosing spondylitis. So with his kind of guidance and mentorship, I mean, that's basically I ended up following his footsteps because, you know, he was the first person to really kind of think outside of the box. I remember telling a rheumatology because, that you know, it's it's an autoimmune rheumatology condition. I told my rheumatologist in med school that I had that diagnosis and he scoffed at it because it is a diagnosis that affects white males predominantly. So he wouldn't even believe the diagnosis. So, you know, ultimately, I decided to go into this field because the field is one where we really focus on quality of life. You know, it's not just let's just address the acute issue. Let's address, you know, the whole picture here. So and and there's lots of different areas that you can kind of branch off of. There's brain injury, there's spinal cord injury, there's strokes and musculoskeletal and spine medicine, which is what I ended up deciding to do. And so, you know, for me, I mean, it's incredibly rewarding. I know what the patients are going through, um, you know, and I, and I, and I, and just having that, that actual kind of personal experience with it, I really think has helped me with my kind of patient care and, and, for a lot of patients when they're in pain, they want to be validated. And we're in a day and age where a lot of, a lot of physicians kind of a lot of people dismiss pain as kind of, well, it's in your head. Um, well, we tried X, Y, and Z. There's nothing else to do, you know, and there's always so much to do. So, you know, and that's, that's how I approach every single one of my patients is, you know, I can always get you better, you know, and most of the time, especially if they're motivated, they do get better. So it's incredibly mm-hmm. rewarding to me. And I love, I love what I do. Um, and I'm, I feel really lucky to say that. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a fascinating story too, because. I mean, I've, I mean, I've had, you know, medical conditions in the past or, um, you know, a situation where I didn't know what it was. And what I realized is the, the time in between is what is, is the suffering for people too, right? What it's like, you have something, you don't know what it is. You go to specialists. Sometimes you wait quite a long period of time. They rule something out, but they still don't know what it is. The worry that we put in between it's until we figure out what it is. To me, that's the real suffering because we go to worst case scenarios. We make the mistake of Googling our symptoms or whatever. And I think, I think I would see how that you, you would make a better physician if you've gone through that and had people dismiss you in certain ways. And you realize like that's what people go through on a daily basis. And sometimes people don't have access to that healthcare and be able to get those results right away. And people live with these conditions for years and years and years. And sometimes they're convinced that it is in their head, that no one believes no one's validating it. And that's got to be hundred percent. I see that a lot where, you know, you know, they're, they basically are just grateful that I'm trying things, you know, or that they've had pain for 20 years, 20 years, no one tried anything. And it's the first time they finally feel better. You know, it's just, and I guess for me, because I I didn't have a diagnosis for probably at, I guess it was at least 10 years. I didn't have, I did not have a diagnosis that, you know, there is medicine to me and the human body is not black or white. What you read in your textbooks isn't necessarily gospel. You know, there is so much we don't know. And so I always, you know, I, I, I always tell patients, I'm kind of the great the gray area physician where there's a lot more than just what your MRI shows me or what your blood work tells me um, because I, I went through it. I experienced it. So that for me, and then also, you know, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of physicians um, when they hear pain, they don't want to deal with it. So they will just, you know, order something, have the patient come back in months 
I mean, if somebody's in pain, you got you have to be more proactive. So I, I really do think, and and you know, whether fate or not, whatever way you want to believe it, I really think that what I've been through has helped me become the physician that I am today. Um, and as you said, I mean, I'm I'm grateful for all you know all the the ups and downs and throughout my childhood until today. It's amazing too because I I've had back issues over the years, and I you know sometimes it's been. Um, you know, a rib has kind of gone out a little bit or whatever, and and I I'm in pain and discomfort. And when someone's in physical pain, like that affects their entire life. It affects your mentality. It affects how your food tastes. It affects how you approach the day. Um, and you know, and I I didn't realize it until I was older and started having some of these things, and I was like, oh, I totally understand now why my grandfather was so angry. <laughs> All the time, if he had, yeah. if he was in some pain, you you understand, like you probably didn't want a twelve year old kid just bouncing a ball in the house all day, you know, like and and, I, and but it, it makes sense now that it just encompasses your whole life when you have that issue and you can't get any resolution to it. It does affect every other aspect of your life, and that's why for every single patient, I actually talk about mental health too. You know, how are they feeling? You know, can they really identify? what they're feeling and why they're feeling this way. And, you know, and I, so we talk about meditation, we talk about, you know, deep breathing techniques or psychotherapy or medications. I mean, there's medications that target both depression and pain because we know that they're so intertwined. So, and sleep, sleep is another one. So there, you know, so basically I, you know, we, the way to manage pain is truly holistically, you know, you can't just look at, you know, just one facet of this person's life and this person's pain. It's truly um, kind of, there's a holistic way to approach it. And that's very much what I, what I advocate for. For sure. I, I also believe too, I think that we, we don't give enough time to that in, in a lot of regards. And I know some people look at either going to therapy or meditating or like we, we've, I think the stigma is starting to fall away from it a little bit because people talk more openly about mental health. Um, but I look at like situations with, you know, police brutality or um, whatever it may be. It's like those people are under a lot of stress every single day. And they've probably seen a lot of horrific, traumatic things it's like, have they actually been able to process what they've experienced? Or are you just going right back out on the job and it's like, all right, here you go. You find yourself in another terrible situation. Like I don't, the human, I don't think a human being is designed to be able to put up with that much trauma again and again and again, but we don't, especially with men, I find it's almost like, oh, just toughen up, you know, whatever. And you, you just go on about your day. And I, I still think there's such a long way to go for us to, to get to have those talks and those conversations with friends, even, you know, we, we would mask it from friends at times, like, how high are you? It's, oh, I'm good. I'm good. And you're not, you know, but well, we, we learned to, to put up this front. Now, the thing is, sometimes people ask and they're not genuine. They don't want to know, you know, so it's right. like, you have to know who to speak to. And those are the people that really should be in your life. I mean, we talk, they talk about toxic masculinity. I mean, I've seen it with older patients of mine. I mean, I, I think I'm probably the only person that a few of the, my older male patients have cried in front of, you know, and then they want to wipe the tears and not, not let their, you know, family members see them crying. And I, you know, and I tell them it's okay to let them see that, you know, I mean, yeah you got to talk about it. You can't. And so one was, you know, he didn't want his grandson to see him crying. And I, you know, and I, and I, and I, I've talked to him on several occasions, your, your grandson should see you cry. It's healthy to cry and talk about it, you know, because then you're perpetuating that idea of real well, men don't cry. And that's not a re and that, not a cope. That's not a way to cope or heal. And why we see over and over again, that men, um, 
have shorter lifespans compared to women when their spouses die because they don't have social support. So, I mean, that's, some, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, because I mean, this, that, that kind of machismo mentality, I mean, it's, it's just sad that society has perpetuated that. Yeah, I agree. And the thing that I've realized too, as I get older is that, you know, your, your parents or whoever raised you, they, they were dealing with their own issues. And quite often people had children fairly young. And so if they have unresolved issues and pain. Like my belief is that you either process pain or you pass it on, you know? And so you, you just pass this thing on down the line. And so we don't even realize that it's kind of just innate in us to kind of process things that way. Cause you never saw your dad cry or you never saw your mom cry. And so these things that become just basic default wiring, it's like you almost have a responsibility to the next generation to make sure you show them these things on a daily basis because that's how they'll raise their children. So two things from that. One, I think that all of us get to a point where we, where we realize that our parents are just people, you know, and that the mistakes that they've made, I mean, a lot of them were just trying the best that they could, you know, and yeah. and giving, you know, forgiving. I think a lot of parents, I think a lot of people fail to remember that and see that. Um and second, you know, that's kind of why, I mean, I, I, I think you've seen on my social media platform, I actually, I signed up for that a year and a, a year ago, March 1st, 2000, 2020, before COVID, um, because I did a community panel discussion and there were so many treatments for pain that patients didn't know. So I actually signed on to become kind of like a, an advocate for people in the community that don't have access to good doctors or so that's why I signed on but then it was like COVID took over two weeks later and then George Floyd and all these other kind of social issues so part of you know part of my platform is education um, medical education COVID education but it actually has become you know what I've realized is that bias as we as you mentioned we all have it and a lot of it stems from what we hear and learn in ho- in our homes as kids. So when I talk about like anti-racist work and and, and you know anti-sexism, genderism work, it's it starts in the home. And so you know having the conversations with our young kids because you know I always say this: if if minority kids can experience racism, you know all kids can learn about racism. Right. So having the conversations with kids, you know, talking about what's going on in the world. I mean, we can't shield our kids because, you know, it's they need to know. I mean, they're going to hear it and learn it and seep it up through our media. I mean, these are things that, you know, I I'm a big advocate of, you know, starting these kids young and knowing uh, to learn to kind of break the cycle of bias and, you know, racism and sexism and whatnot. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It, it's uh, the other thing too. I've I've started to learn to do over the years. I, again, I I suffered racism when I was growing up, and and it takes various forms. But one of the things I've tried to be more conscious of, and it's a, it's a daily thing, is trying to be conscious of not telling someone what their experience has been. Like, if that makes any sense, I think sometimes we, you know, someone may say that they experience sexism or racism, and someone else may say. Well, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen it around here. It's like, well, of course you may not have seen it. I guarantee you've seen it. You just haven't let it into your brain. But you know what I mean? Like they almost want to tell someone else that, that their experience is not valid because they've never ever witnessed that. And I'm like, that's that's not fair. Like that's not fair to say that you you just, it's dismissive to do that, someone's experience. And I think some of the, some of the education has got to start with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and that's why... You, you know, with this past year, there's been a lot of like 
amplifying voices. And I think that that's important. You know, it's having the humility to know that you may not know what the person next to you is experiencing and actually listening. And, and I've, I've talked about this as well, you know, two years ago, a year and a half ago, I mean, I wasn't necessarily on, I didn't really understand why Colin Kaepernick kneeled. I didn't understand necessarily Black Lives Matter and the reason behind it. It wasn't until George Floyd that I actually started listening because, you know, there's that idea, well, my parents did it, but I didn't really, you know, I was looking at symptoms. I wasn't looking at root causes, you know, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, Black Americans will not have the same experience as the immigrant experience. It's completely different. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it is, it is, is, is having the ability to kind of put yourself in somebody else's shoes and listening and having these conversations and reading because, uh, you know, I saw a quote where, you know, if, 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 you know, um, a non like a white person who says, well, growing up, I mean, I never saw racism. All my black, all my black friends were fine. Why don't you go back and speak to those, your black friends and see kind of what they, how, why, how they kept silent to, to, to make you more comfortable. I mean, that's a reality as an Asian American I just kept my head down, you know, right. having people mock our language and slants their eyes and make fun of the food we eat. You know, it was just part of life. I just figured that that would just be part of life. But I've, re- I've realized that we don't have to just put up with it. There isn't a right. reason why there has to be overt racism and discrimination um, that things can change. And that's kind of how I've become a little bit more very vocal, I should say, about um, trying to change some of these, you know, that this change a system that clearly is broken. No, I hear you. I think too, it, it's my own upbringing. And, and uh, for a long time, I was the only, you know, black kid in the, in the town and city that I grew up in. And I remember having thoughts in my head that became regular thoughts. Like if I was dating a girl, I remember thinking, do her parents know that I'm black, right? Because I, and I go like, that became a regular thought that I would go into, because I guess it's a defense mechanism to, to protect you down the road. But I realized until I was older, I was like, isn't it an odd thing that, to think in your mind as a child? But, but that became regular. I'm sure my white friends didn't ever think about, I hope the, uh, the dad of the girl I'm dating knows what race I am. Like, I'm sure no. there's never a thought in their mind. But for, I think for minorities, we have all these thought processes going on all the time that, again, are defense mechanisms we've learned to that have evolved over the years. And after a while, they just become normal. And I think that's one of the real sad things about it, because that takes up so much mental real estate, you know, in our lives. And I always say like, like words and language matter. I think that some of the words and phrases that have been coined are a little triggering for some people, like the phrase white privilege. I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of people feel, well, you know, I worked hard for, for what I have. And that's not at all what the term actually means. And the best example that I give, or one example that I give often is every single black friend of mine, male or female, has been given the talk about what to do when a policeman pulls them over. Every single one. It is a privilege of be, me being Asian American that I've never had that conversation. That is a privilege based on the fact of my skin color. So, you know, putting it into that context, you know, and same thing with white supremacy, it doesn't mean that you are, you belong to a hate group. It doesn't mean that all white people are bad. It's just a matter of a system that, you know, favors, you know, white Americans. I mean, they're, they're, if, if people stop being reactive to words or like, you know, certain words or phrases and actually listened and like, you know, read or, or tried to learn more, I think they would understand that we're not attacking 
anybody. You know, we're we're just here fighting for equity and equality. And so, you know, that 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 to me, I mean, once I was able to even put, you know, be humble myself is when I started learning. And that's why I'm I'm very open about my my experience because I used to be the person that would dismiss it. You know, and I always had black friends, but did I actually sit and talk to them? Did I sit and talk to my patients and ask their experiences? Not like I am now. And when and now that I am, I mean, the stories that you hear, you know, I mean, there's a reason why there's a, a movement and there's been a, a racial reckoning, at least in America. I mean, I hope worldwide, but at least in America, there's been one, especially yeah. after this past year. Yeah. And here as well in Canada, there's been a, it's one of those things when, you know, when George Floyd died, you know, there was the waves of protests and stuff in Canada up here as well. But I thought, okay, well, how long will this last? Will it just be, it's going to be a couple of weeks then the news cycle keeps spinning out another story and the next thing we move on. But it's, it's stuck around. And I think it, it was like, maybe it was the graphicness of the images of the thing being captured and you're watching this man slowly lose his life. And, and it's an image that I think just people cannot get out of their head. And so attached to that has been, you know, this bigger movement. Well, the other thing that I learned about myself too, is that with the Me Too movement, I realized I had a bit of a, because people use privilege all the time and, and I understand what they mean. But one of the terms I like to use is just, is just a blind spot. You know, you don't necessarily go around um, condoning these things, but you have a blind spot to someone else's experience because you don't live in their shoes. And I, I had a blind spot for the Me Too movement. I went, I know there's men out there who are horrific and violent and, you know, the, you know, Harvey Weinstein's of the world. But to me, it was like, okay, that's that. But, you know, let's make sure we all stomp that out. Not realizing it's, it's a daily thing for most women to think about safety and where they walk and when they leave their house to go to their car and it's nighttime and what time is it and where are my keys and where's the door. And that finally hit me after all these years that finally hit me of like, oh, their experience walking through the world is completely different than my experience as a 6'3 guy who's 220 pounds, you know, but all this time I thought I'm like, oh, I'm pretty, you know, pretty aware in the world. I think I, I treat everybody equal, but you realize you, you have this blind spot and I think we all have it. Yeah. And, and that's why, again, it, it's like, and like, I, I applaud you for even, for even recognizing that because I think a lot of people go through life without listening and, and, and learning. And, and that's what it comes down to is just, opening your mind and your heart, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable and having conversations and knowing we all have room for improvement. You know, I mean, for the rest of our every day for the rest of our lives, we're going to be learning. And and that that to me is goal of, of life, right? You know, just so I yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because I, I really do think with gender, with sexual orientation, I mean, I've been having a lot of conversations about, you know, the trans community. And, and you know, again, we're all human beings, right? It's, it's how is it that a human being can't be given normal rights? Um, and since we're not walking in those shoes, we don't necessarily pay attention to it. But then there are people that are basically being told they're not human beings, you know, or they don't, they don't matter. And, you know, I think what we don't know a lot of times scares us. Um, but, you know, again, it, it's, that's why it's get uncomfortable, get uncomfortable and have the conversations. But the, the one big thing is just focus on kindness, you know, being, being kind to, to the people around you, like the, the uptick in, in hate crimes in, in the Asian community after, you know, through the pandemic is through the roof. I mean, it's almost 2000% increase. Where the highest number of um, hate crimes 
in terms of a ratio in the last year. And to, you know, last night, I don't know if you heard in Atlanta, but uh, I mean, and and if if you've listened to the press conference, they're, they're saying that he had a bad day and that he was, he was frustrated, you know, but you know, I look back and I say, you know, Elijah McLean was walking home, walking home. And he's a sweet, sweet kid that never heard a fly. And he died when he was, you know, but the, he died. And even, George, you know, George Floyd, I mean, it was a petty crime and he died, you know, but this guy, they're making excuses for him. Like, to me, that's that gl- glaring, that to me is glaring racism. With, and I don't even think that they're aware of it. You know, in the press conference, I don't even think those guys are aware of what's going on here. But it, I, I admit that today was tough for me because it feels almost like the system is so broken. Will will it ever change? You know, for all of us, all of us minority, marginalized groups. But you got to keep trucking along. You know, I mean, the fight doesn't end. You know, we have to keep we have to keep moving forward. And I do think that this. I think it is different this year. I do think that you know it didn't stop after George Floyd. People are talking about it. All ethnic backgrounds, people are standing up and, and voicing voicing their 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 opinions now. Yeah, I think you're right. And one of the things I I posted um, last year was just that you know I'm all about protests and I'm all about people doing things on social media. But I've always said that the real work is done when you're by yourself and, mm-hmm. and you witness something that is wrong. And do you decide to stay to yourself and kind of not make it your business? Or do you go, yeah, now's the time to actually step up and do something. It's easy when you're in large numbers and you've got signs and you're marching and there's all this momentum and energy, but it's this, the decisions you'll make when no one else is around that make the difference. And I think exactly. that's when you'll see a real change on a daily basis, but that's up to the individual, you know, in Absolutely. the moment to decide to do the right thing, you know? Right. I completely agree. And, you know, and that's why I think for you and me and, and anybody else who even has a presence on social media, what we say can can influence people truly, you know, let them see a different perspective, you know, and if it's five people or if it's 500 people, you know, just giving them a different vantage point and simply by talking about our upbringing, you know, you telling you talking about what what how you what the thoughts that you had as a kid, I mean, there's somebody listening that that will that'll resonate with them. Like, wow, I've I've never even thought about that. You know, so for me, I mean, I think it's amazing to be using your platform because I do think that you know, I mean, whether it's highlighting different people, but sharing everybody's varied experiences, you know, and all of us have had hardships and failures, and we picked ourselves back up, and you know, to get to where we are now. I mean, I think that that real life stories are what what people need to hear. Um, so, you know, thank you for doing that. And thank you for um, taking the time to talk to me today. No, no. Thanks for, thanks for sharing your story and experience too. I think all of them help. I'm a big fan of uh, collective wisdom. I like to call yeah. it. I think if you, the more stories you take in in perspective, I think you're just, you're more knowledgeable and better educated. And I think you can make better decisions going forward when you have that, you know, it's interesting because as a Canadian up here, we get so much American news, right? We get all your channels. So we, we are as in tune with what is going on in America as a whole, mm-hmm. um, as I'm sure most Americans, you know, it's just, it's, but it's not the other way around. You know, you don't get our news. So we kind of, we get the advantage, the vantage point on your world. What do you think has been the change? Like I, I look at, you know, because we have the same problems in Canada. They're not highlighted as much or talked about it as much, but we have the same issues to a large degree. And I ask myself, what has been this change? What has been 
I don't think it's just suddenly evolved. Like suddenly now people are racist. I think it's always been there. But what do you think has made it come out into the light? What do you think has made people go like, oh, it's okay to do this now. We can just attack members of the Asian population. We can, you know, like, what do you think has been the, the fuel that's fostered that? Um, do you want my honest opinion? <laughs> I would love your honest opinion. I think I know what your opinion is going to be, but I want to hear it. <laughs> I think our previous administration, the rhetoric and language that was used, um, emboldened people to be open and public with hatred and racism and discrimination and superiority. Um, you know, I, whether it was intentionally used language, like intentional language or not, it's, it, it still had that effect um, because, of course, people just cling on to what suits their narrative. So divisiveness, you know, calling, um, refusing to call COVID COVID, but the China, China virus and the, and the Kung Fu flu. I mean, what do you think that's going to do that? That obviously points blame to, to China. And then, yeah. you know, I mean, so it's not a coincidence that there's almost a 2000% increase in, in hate crimes that are reported, because I'm sure mm-hmm. there's many that are not reported, you know, but but in terms of, you know, a- anything that was other, whether it was Muslim, Muslims, Mexicans, you know, black, a- every marginalized group, he basically was very open about other is less than, you know, foreign, right. it doesn't belong here. so. Whether it was intentional or not, it had this outcome. And I think that if we compound that with COVID and everyone being home and and kind of, you know, being able to not engage in conversation with people, but just kind of reading and jumping, running down rabbit holes of different kind of news sources that fit their narrative, I think that made things worse for people too. So there it was just, it was just a, you know, a, a combination of just multiple things that I think made this past year such a divisive and pretty frightening year. But I also think, I also think the pandemic is what allowed people to sit with their thoughts and see, you know, the brutality of some of these deaths and these race, these hate crimes and have the time to process it and actually take a stand against it. So on the flip side, I think it actually, there was actually some real positive that came out of the pandemic, at least as it pertains to social issues, because people actually had the time to kind of pay attention to it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. They couldn't just go back to their busy lives and kind of, you know, blow over it again. I think it was, they were forced to sit in it. Um, it's interesting because, too, I don't know how many Americans would know this, but like we see, you know, pro-Trump signs in Canada. You'll see people who are far, far right and they're protesting, you know, whatever's going on in Canada. And they'll have like Trump signs. And you're like, I feel like but you're in Canada. Like, do you even know where you're living? Like, what are you living? Who are you supporting? What's going on? And and one of the things that I think is terrifying to me is that this this whole thing you talk about of othering, when you can convince a group of people that their life is not where, where they want it to be because of these other people, to me, is such a terrifying, terrifying way of doing business because that then galvanizes these people to A, not take responsibility for their own situation. They then now find a community through you know online news sources and they can gather quickly through Facebook. And now you're emboldened. And now you're like, no, there's more than me who thinks this. And now you've created a wave and you see the storming of the Capitol and you're like, is this America? Like we're watching this on the news and watching this unfold. And you realize that for whatever you believe, there's someone out there who can, 
will validate that and go, yeah, I also believe that my life's not where it should be because of these other people, the immigrants at the border, the Asian population, blacks. It's just, to me, it's, it's just a terrifying thing. And it's, and it's a ploy that's been used, you know, since the history of time, but, but people still get duped by it, which still is mind blowing to me. You know, it's, um, I mean, it was the ploy that Hitler used, you know, I mean, yeah. Jew, Jewish people will take over our businesses and our money. Um, they are, you know, they're the enemy. And so it was exactly the same thing where, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I, oddly, I don't think that people who are pro Trumpers or pro, um, QAnon or whatever that conspiracy group is, I don't even think they realize that. I, I don't think that they have that insight. But, you know, it is, it's this fear of changing status quo and, you know, you know, socialist country and, and things are going to change now. And, you know, we have to protect ourselves. And that that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's the birth of, of all that fear, ignorance, and then what, what ended up, you know, translating to violence. I mean... Yeah, it was it was it was a very un- unusual year to, to needless to say here in the states. But I, I do, I mean, I think a lot of us breathe the sigh of relief when the new administration took over. Not necessarily because we were all pro Biden fan, you know, pro Biden. It was more we need a little bit of kind of unifying rhetoric now. You know, we mm. not not so much spewing hatred, just just more harmonious you know, kind of unifying language. And that that's for me where I, I actually shed tears because it just seemed like felt like year four years of vitriol, you know? Right. So yeah, I mean I, I'm I'm hopeful. I mean, granted today was a little bit of a setback for me because, you know, it just sometimes it just feels like there's so much hate in the world and, you know, when will this end? But you just we just keep trekking forward and do do things, you know, the best that we can. Yeah, I agree. I feel like too, we, we have to now search for the good um, far more thoroughly than we have before. Like you actually have to actually look for it in terms of your social media. When you go out in the world, you have to actually look for it and be very conscious of it. And yesterday I was walking down the street and I saw an old lady had a bag of hats that she gave a wool hat to a homeless person who was on the street. You know, and I was like, it wasn't done for social media. She didn't have a phone out trying to capture herself doing this thing. She just did it. And she walked on her way. And I was like, I'm glad I saw that. I needed to see that thing, you know, yeah. and it wasn't, I don't know how many people even saw it. You know, there's just a few people walking by. And I think those people are still out there, but we, we do get just bombarded all the time with this, this negative news. And it, it does affect your mental health. Um, yeah, combined with COVID and stuff. So, in transitioning to this, I want to talk about this because I saw on your social media you have been vaccinated. Is this correct? Yeah, I have been vaccinated. So how did how did that go? I have not been. Uh, Canada, I think we're at like possibly like a little over seven percent of the population has got the first dose of the vaccine. Oh, okay. Very very slow rollout up here. And so slow. As a comedian, I mean, our, yeah. So I wow. have some colleagues in Canada that just got their first dose, which is mind blowing. But yeah. you know, it, I don't think anybody anticipated. Everybody was so focused on getting the vaccine developed that people did not think about the the next step. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm glad at least 70% has been vaccinated. You guys have the same ones we do, I assume, Moderna, Pfizer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Johnson & Johnson. Sure. So yeah, I, I actually, I received Moderna. My first one was, my first dose was in January. Um, you know, it was, for me, there was, I was beyond excited. Um, I know that 
People have questions about how quickly they were developed. This was a this is a global pandemic. We had billions of dollars funneled into the development. Um, we had willing participants, vaccine trial participants, since the first case here in America, which is not often the case with these vaccine trials. So it was just everything kind of came together. Everybody working avidly, you know. It, they came up with the the mRNA of technology, which has been around for 30 years, but they were able to develop this technology that is, to me, brilliant. I think it's the way of the future for vaccines, you know, where basically they take the, um, the mRNA genome of coronavirus and they've created it in a lab. We, they inject it, you know, into our deltoid. It's the, the mRNA stays in the cytoplasm. The, um, the, it never enters a nucleus where the DNA is. So when people are concerned that it's going to alter DNA, that will never happen. The mRNA stays out here and our body's immune system sees this mRNA and starts building up antibodies to fight the spike proteins that we see in the virus. But then this mRNA that's lingering out here is basically cleaved by enzymes and then just gone out of our body, you know, and pretty quickly. So doesn't change our DNA. Um, you know, it and, and it's pretty, you know, there's really nothing in it that there's no preservatives and no chemicals because it's not a an inactivated virus. So a lot of those chemicals and those, you know, um, metals that people are worried about with some of these other vaccines, the mRNA technology has avoided that because there is no any virus at all in the vaccine itself. So to me, it's, I think it's the way of the future, you know, in terms of technology yeah, yeah, yeah. development. Amazing, so amazing. My first dose, I mean, I had a, definitely a bit of a heavy arm. You know, a lot of people are saying, kind of use that arm to prevent it from, or massage the area where you were injected. Four weeks later was my second dose. And, you know, I woke up and I felt great. I was, I had this false sense of like, you know, oh, I made it through the woods, but then I, I started having low grade fevers and muscle aches. And, and all that is, is that my immune system is working, you know, and, and that's all, that's all that that is. And, you know, after a day or two, it was gone and now I'm fully vaccinated and I'm really no. happy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. Uh, yeah. Um, has it been frustration frustrating for you as a doctor to see to see some colleagues, I guess, and we because we've seen the same thing here in Canada of people who have been pushing, you know, different theories about, you know, not getting vaccinated or, you know, uh, statistics at hospitals or whatever. Because I think that's all people need, right? Is like one person who seems to have the credentials and then look, this doctor see, I knew it. This one doctor has said whatever. And then you do a little bit more research on that doctor and realize like, I don't really know if that's a doctor. Um, but anyway, like, yeah. you know what I mean? But it just, it shifts the whole, the whole thinking and logic goes out the window. Has it been, has that been frustrating for you? Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's kind of what we talked about, even with the political stuff and what fits your narrative. People don't want to be inconvenienced. They want to be told everything's going to be okay. You can live your life. You don't need to wear a mask. So any, you know, random fake doctor or, or whoever that says, you know, masks don't work, um, you know, the vaccine doesn't work, it's dangerous. I mean, I it is incredibly frustrating because it, it's... I. Unfortunately, COVID was very much politicized from the beginning. Um, back in March, the administration said that it was a liberal agenda and that it's fine. So I still have patients that refuse to wear masks, which makes no sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, hearing it from anybody in our community, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually really disturbing because if you read the science, if you know the science, they would never be saying anything that they, that they are. You know, at this point, any vaccine risk is 
minuscule compared to the risk of COVID. You know, and, and everyone's like, well, you know, the mortality rate is 99%. But we're talking about morbidity here, you know, neurologic symptoms, heart damage, lung damage. I mean, all the, and that, that's a majority of a lot of patients that were sick or used, also didn't have symptoms but had COVID or de- are becoming what we call long haulers. You know, and, and we don't know what that's going to look like down the road for them. So stop focusing on the mortality rate. It's this morbidity, this, you know, I mean, it's pretty catastrophic. So, yeah, it's been uh, compounded with everything else. It's been difficult trying to debunk all the misinformation and, you know, people asking me questions. I'm like, just, you know, if, if, you're, if you trust me to take care of you as, as your physician, why are you not trusting me with COVID? Right. And, I, and I've asked patients that, and there's been a couple of patients that have come around, but, you know, I'm like, just because it hasn't directly affected you, I know so many people who have lost loved ones and family members, so many people. And it's, it's just, it's like a disgrace, you know, to, to say anything yeah. otherwise. Yeah, I, I think you're right. When people are inconvenienced, they'll find an alt- alternate truth, you know, that, that fits fits their life. Okay, well, I'm going to have to let you go, but I need to ask this question before I do, because I feel like... It's not often I get to talk to someone who's an expert of the in the back area, right? So what what is the number one thing our, my listeners can do and I can do for proper back health to, to help me make sure that I'm not a person who's a perfect circle by the time I'm 50 and I'm just into it, you know, what, <laughs> what, 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 what advice can you offer? And I know this is the last thing you'd want at a party because I guess, <laughs> oh, oh, you're, oh, you're a comedian. Oh, tell me a joke. And I'm like, oh, for the love of God. And I just, I walk off to get a drink somewhere. So I understand we're doing this, but this is a podcast and I think it would be helpful for listeners. So, so honestly, I mean, I think people underestimate the power of stretching, you know, your hips, your hamstrings, all of us are, we're, we're a sitting culture now, right? So we're sitting for long periods of time, our hamstrings, our lower body muscle groups get really tight. The older we get, if we're not as hydrated as we should be, that compounds a tightness all of that actually can exacerbate or precipitate back pain. So flexibility is huge. Hydrating is huge. You know, if your core, deep abdominal muscles, working on on strengthening your core is just as incredibly important as well. Um, You know, if if you have pain with certain activities, you know, you maybe maybe want to try some alternate activities. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of running, especially on hard, um, on pavement, for example, because Think about it. Every time you strike down, it's almost like a compre- you're, you're compressing the spine, almost like an accordion. So, you know, you want to be mind. You also want to know your, your family history, because mm. if you have a long history of back issues, you got to be a little bit more mindful of, you know, what you're doing in your day to day. And if you have if you start having back pain, it's not it's not you don't have to wait until it's debilitating to see a doctor. You can be proactive. And that's what I always tell people, too. You don't have to wait until it's, quote, bad enough. You know, there's always things that we can change, whether it's your footwear, whether it's your, how, you know, your gait mechanics, your running mechanics. So there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, but, you know, the basics is stretching, core strengthening, you know, posture when you're sitting for hours on end, you know, those kind of things. So those are, those are kind of some of the basic, simple things that you can do on your own. All right. Well, I'm going to try all of this stuff um, <laughs> and I'll have to get an update to you at some point. Um, thank That's you so good. much for doing this. I really, really enjoyed that We blew through an hour and change here. I mean, uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Yeah. I mean, we hit a lot of topics. I, I mean, I feel like we could keep going. So, you know, thanks yeah. again. I really appreciate it. And I look forward, you know, to more conversations down the road. 
All the best. Take care of yourself. Thanks again. You too. Bye-bye.